Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We're coming to you today in front of an audience at Portland's Ida B. Wells High School. We are spending the hour with the writer Charles Yu. Charles Yu has a knack for carefully constructing worlds and then breaking them apart to show us deeper truths about the way realities and our own identities are constructed. So a novel about time travel tells us painful truths about our longings in the present. A novel as a screenplay of a TV show turns into a weird and wise and funny exploration of race in America. And a story in the form of a physics problem yields insights about the beginning and the possible end of a romantic relationship. His most recent novel, Interior Chinatown, won a 2020 National Book Award. Charles Yu, welcome to Think Out Loud. Thanks. Thanks so much, Dave. We're in a high school, so I, I can't help but ask this question just to start with. What was high school like for you? Um, it's pretty scary. Uh, I remember spending some lunches where I would just walk around pretending I had somewhere to be because I didn't, I don't know. I had friends, but I was sort of always scared to go eat with them for some reason. Uh, and, um, I have, now I have two high school kids of my own and I don't think they would give up their lunch to watch me talk. So I think, I thank all of you for being here. This is very exciting. Also, still a little scary, weirdly. I, I still have those weird high school anxiety dreams where I'm back at school and either not wearing pants or like I, the test was today and I didn't study for it. So, hmm. yeah. Was the fear then and the fear now of, of not fitting in? I mean, what do you think was behind it? I don't know. I mean, yes, I think that it boils down to not fitting in, just sort of feeling like um, people might not like me or I don't know where I belong. Am I in the right group or, um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly where that came from, but uh, I think it's probably pretty natural for that time of life. Yeah. You mentioned you have high school age kids right now. One of the themes in in your, certainly in um, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional um, world, but in others as well, is the kind of um, superimposition of of memories and time and of loops uh, mm-hmm. and of repetitions. D- ha- has having kids who are now high schoolers has that changed the way you think about your own high school time? Mm. Yes, I think so. I think I mean one. It's in some ways it, it feels like things don't change that much. I mean, I still see them going through the same kinds of things I did, you know, the first crush or first relationship, first heartbreak, but also the excitement of things. Um, Obviously, things are different in terms of culture and how much information they have access to and how they connect with other people. So that's very different. But I think what it sort of does for me is, you know, I, knowing what I know um, and being their dad, I... I try really hard not to kind of impose my, like what I had to go through and the mistakes I had to make. And I just have to let them understand or let them go through it because I think that's the only way they're really going to understand, um, you know, what, what it really means to kind of grow up. If someone can tell you something a hundred times, but you're not going to believe it till you actually do it. Hmm. 
We're also in a library here, surrounded by books, some of them yours, many of them, most of them not yours. What were the books that really impacted you when you were this age, when you were 16, 17, 18? Hmm. Um, I mean, I definitely read a lot of books. Like I remember reading Crime and Punishment for AP English as a senior. I was like, this is a very intense book, you know? Um, uh, I remember reading, um, yeah, short stories um, in like 10th grade English, um, Hemingway and in Steinbeck novels. And um, I think all the sort of classics back then were, were, I mean, they were obviously classics for a reason, but the things I really remember, like reading science fiction or comics on my own, you know, I read um, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, um, which was this big epic thing that's now like on Apple as a TV show, if anyone's seen that. And that's kind of the stuff that got me excited is reading sci-fi and fantasy on my own. Hmm. We are in front of an audience of students, um, many of whom, maybe most of whom, have read your latest novel, Interior Chinatown. For listeners who haven't read it, can you just describe the the central premise? Yeah. um, The central premise, the the protagonist of the book is Willis Wu, who is a background Asian man. And he exists in this kind of strange reality where um, he basically is on a TV show, but the TV show is reality and reality is a TV show. And, you know, this, the main sort of story of the book is that Willis starts as generic Asian man number three, which is very low on the kind of ladder of roles and eventually progresses to become a star of the story. And in the course of that, he learns, you know, a lot about himself. He learns about Um, others and he learns about sort of the roles that he will need to play in his life um, in order to you know be a good son you know father partner Um, and so it's it's basically the story of this guy growing up let's take a question from our audience what's your name and what's your question Uh, my name is era and my question is is willis unintentionally adhering to the stereotypes expected of him thinking it will get him higher up the ladder to escape stereotypes that's a great question. Um, um, I mean, I, I don't want to do the author thing of like, uh, what do you think? You know, like I, I, I'll try to give you an answer, but I, I also want to stress that I, my answer, even though I wrote the book, is not necessarily the right answer because I think once you sort of put something out in the world, you don't always necessarily have the the like a privileged access to it anymore. But I would say it's it's a really good question because it's perceptive in the sense that, yes, I mean, I think it's very tricky because he knows that um, that the stereotypes, you know, will get him further, at least at first, and that it's people are going to, going to be more comfortable if they can put him in a label or in a role that they understand. And so whether consciously or, or unconsciously, I think Willis... Um, sort of adopts certain behaviors or makes certain choices that do sort of lean into those stereotypes at times. Well, if you don't want to be in the position of saying, what do you think? I can do that. Yeah. Um, what, what made you want to ask that question? Um, I don't know. Cause I just saw that there were a lot of roles that um, um, everyone was fitting into, like the certain things that people are, were expected of them. Like you're expected to do this. So I will act this way kind of. Hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Let's take another question from our audience. I'm going to give our executive producer time to, to move around. Uh, go ahead. Uh, my name is Kira, and my question is, how do you think Asian American representation has changed in Hollywood in the last few years? Do you think we're making progress in representation? Great, great question. Yes. Um, I think it's changed a lot. Uh, even from the time that I published the book four years ago, it's changed. Um, from the time when I started writing the book, which is like 10 years ago or so, it's definitely changed um, to the point where there was a like a moment in 2018 when the movie Crazy Rich Asians came out. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it really felt like a big deal at the time um, because you know I'm of an age where I grew up n- seeing very, very rarely a movie of like that scale or a show of that scale that really kind of broke through in the mainstream in a big way. And it felt like this might actually change things. And I, and I actually think not just from one movie, but it was the right thing at the right time. And it was the beginning of a lot more Asian American representation in TV and film. And so um, that's really encouraging. It's really exciting. Um, I think we're still pretty early on in, in that expansion. And so I think there are still a lot of things to explore and a lot of stories to tell, but it's really cool that things, you know, I mean, to the point where my kids, um, I mean, I think they recognize that it's still pretty special to see, you know, sort of like faces like theirs on screen, but they also, um, they don't fully appreciate how, how, how novel it actually is. I think because they, they're 16 and 14, they've grown up in an age where it's sort of, um, not as shocking, you know, whereas for someone my age, it's still a little bit weird. It'll always probably be a little bit weird. Hmm. How have you handled that as a, as a father? I mean, you'd mentioned earlier that, that in terms of lessons, there's a limit to how much you can just give a lesson. People have to just get them. I mean, I don't imagine that, that you want to dwell on the fact that of, of how, or maybe you do want to say, you don't understand how, <laughs> how different this is than, than my childhood, what I saw when I turned on my three channels. Yeah. How much do you talk about that? I mean, a little bit. I, I try to gauge them based on whether or not they're checked out or not. You know? If they're looking at their phones, uh, I, I'll save it. I, I also just generally try, I, I'd say I generally try not to. I think they sort of, know it they're you know very perceptive you know and i have to remember they're probably much better at like consuming media and being aware of these things than i am i I mean i'm sure they are i think like the amount of sort of discussion and discourse that's out there they get all of that they know like nuances of things that i you know i'm probably pretty like basic about to be honest and so uh, and i'm not saying it's all right like everything they learn on tiktok is you know i definitely have to try to balance that with like a dad's perspective a parent's perspective but i try not to be a person who's lecturing them too much because i think they're it's sort of like they're gonna know it they're gonna either learn it or not and it'll be it'll mean more when they get out like out of their bubble you know we live in this kind of suburb that's very sort of safe and sterile and i think once they get out into you know go to college or whatever um they'll probably come back and say like oh i get it now so Hmm. i'm hoping Hmm. Let's take another question from our audience. Go ahead. Um, is Chinatown a metaphorical portrayal of cultural assimilation cap? Um, yes. <laughs> Great question. I think um, it's a, I think of it as like a psychological Chinatown. It's sort of a mix of several actual Chinatowns, but it's also 
its own thing altogether. And I think of it as um, kind of the place in my head where, at least for me growing up, this weird space that Asian and Asian Americans sort of occupied in America, which is kind of floating in the background, sort of like you're, you're sort of there, but you're not there. And the story is not really centered on you. And so that to me, that's, you know, where the title of the book really kind of comes from. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with the writer, Charles Yu. He's the author of the novels interior in Chinatown and how to live safely in a science fictional universe. Um, we've been talking about your most recent novel, but I was actually wondering if you could read something from that first one that, that I just mentioned. Um, because there are some interesting resonances for me. So the central character of your first novel is a time travel technician. And in the, the excerpt we're going to hear, when, when he was a kid, his father, who was an immigrant, um, an engineer, was always tinkering in um, their garage, um, sort of struggling, toiling. And he's just explained to his kid, um, hey, what I'm working on is actually uh, a time machine. Right. Okay. So I will read from this book, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. <clears throat> As he described his invention to me, I found it hard to look at him. He was talking a little too loud for one thing, which, if you, know, if you knew my father, was alarming all by itself. My father was quiet but not meek, soft-spoken but not unsure. It was more than that. Quiet speaking was more than just a controlled softness of the voice, more than the virtues of decorum and tact and propriety. Quiet speaking was more than manners or personal preference or style or personality in total. It was a way of moving about the world, my father's way of moving through the world. It was a survival strategy for a recent immigrant to a new continent of opportunity, a land of possibility, to the science fictional area where he had come on scholarship with nothing to his name, but a small green suitcase, a lamp that his aunt gave him, and $50, which became 47 after exchanging currency at the airport. And here he was, voice raw, talking fast, excited in a way that made me uncomfortable, hopeful in a way that worried me. I didn't believe it, or maybe I didn't believe in him. Maybe I'd absorbed enough defeat in my short life from watching him, the look on his face as he pulled into the driveway every night, that I already doubted my own father. I thought he was brilliant, of course. He was my father and a hero. But would the world understand him? Would the world give him what he deserved? There were opposing vectors, stress from the tensors pulling between what was and what could be, between his science fictional hopes and the reality of the station wagon we were sitting in. You made a choice in that first novel to tell us that um, that, that character, the, the, the main character's father, emigrated from what you call a faraway country, a tiny island in the ocean. There are some cultural details that you provide about religion or food that, that may give a little bit more specificity. But you don't say, for example, that he comes from Taiwan. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily know, know that. I mean, I'm, I don't know that he does. Uh -huh. um, th you're your main character in your next novel um, does. And there is some specificity in, in that novel. You talk about New York City and Los Angeles and Tokyo. I'm curious what went into that decision to, to not name where he came from. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think there's kind of two parts to the answer. I think there's um, 
a creative choice and a probably a personal choice. Um, the creative choice, I think the impulse was, if I say Taiwan, um, it one, it it's so specific that it may pull the reader out of it momentarily and say, oh, I'm reading a story about a, a very specific family. It kind of degeneralizes the experience potentially. Um, so as a, you know, as I'm telling the story, I'm just trying to balance like how to tell this with enough specificity that it feels real and lived in, but not so much that it ties it to any one particular experience. That That's what's in my head. I'm not saying that's a sort of rule and or prescriptive in any way, but, um, but I think what actually comes, I, I think where that choice actually came from, and this is the personal reason was a kind of like fear that it would expose too much personally. I mean, my parents are immigrants from Taiwan. One, I wondered how they would feel, you know, like it's already, there's already some sort of autobiographical basis for some of it. And I think also I was just afraid of like, would people care as much, you know, like, would they think of oh, this? I, you know, I don't care about this very specific story about immigrants from Taiwan. And I think that actually in some ways led to me writing interior Chinatown years later is that sort of struggle in myself of thinking is my story interesting enough? Is my parents' story interesting enough? And is this fictionalized version of it? Do I need to kind of, make it more interesting in order for it to be worthy of, you know, being in a novel, I guess. Hmm. Let's take another question from our audience. Go ahead. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Colin Wigman. Um, and my question is, how do you think representation differs between Asian people me in media and queer Asian people in media? That's a great question, Colin. I don't know that I'm like super equipped to talk at length about it. Mm, I feel like, I th I think there's probably still um, overall less proportionately less representation of queer Asian people in media, for one thing. So there tends to be more focus or pressure when you see the few representations there are. Um, I, I think it's probably, because of that, it's often probably still to some extent broader, you know, because when just by virtue of numbers, there's less variety, there's less, um, I mean, kind of talking from the inside too, I feel like when you are writing a character that you know you don't get to see that much on TV or film, often there's, you want it, you want that character to stand for so many things and it can be too much to put on any one character. So I, I think sometimes, um, and then I think there's also just the reality of making TV and film, a lot of times there are compromises that ha happen creatively, so it can have the effect of of leaning into stereotypes or or um, what's the word um, kind of relying on kind of received representations or notions of people um, rather than getting into really sort of nuanced and specific portrayals of people. But I think there's for both. I think there has been progress, and I think there will continue to be. So I, I'm very encouraged. Hmm. Both of the novels that we've talked about so far, there are a lot of things, but they could, if you boil them down and look and sort of squint your eyes a little bit, they could be read as explorations of the way our jobs define us. What interests you in just in the question of work and professions? Yeah. I, I mean, 
my parents both worked, you know, their whole lives, their whole careers. And I think they worked really hard. They weren't home a lot. And I think that probably had its first effect on me is the idea of like, oh, this is what you do when you get to a certain age. You go to an office and you sit there and you come back and you're really tired. It's <laughs> a grind. It's a grind. It takes you away from home and it's necessary. I think those all, th- all of that. And I think I would add to that one other thing, which is I think for them, there was also an aspect of cultural assimilation because they were immigrants. They speak with accents. Um, and I think culturally they just had to learn the rules, not just of being in that workplace, but being Americans in that workplace. And I think that sort of like um, performance I think does kind of interest has always interested me and it's influenced not just interior Chinatown, but other stories I've written where I think I constantly look at things as a kind of performance, you know, just everyday life. There are interactions where on some level you are putting on some version of yourself. It's almost like, like a a profession as code switching. Yes. Yeah. You you were a lawyer. I mean, so to to make it specific. So for 10 plus years, you were a corporate lawyer while you wrote some of your first books Right. At that time, did did you – what was your self-conception? Was it a lawyer who wrote, a, a writer who lawyered, neither? <laughs> My self-conception was definitely not as a lawyer. It was like kind of like someone who didn't belong. Like I, I was like, I am not a grown-up and these are grown-ups. You know, like 10 minutes ago I was a student and now suddenly I'm wearing like slacks and I'm like – like people twice my age are – like paying a lot of money for my advice. They're not paying me personally, but they're paying my firm. And that was weird because I think my first kind of code switching was like code switching to be a responsible adult, which I didn't feel like at the time. I mean, how how likely do you think it is that most people you were encountering, encountering even in that those scenarios were also thinking the same thing? I mean, in retrospect, probably a lot of a lot of us were. I mean, another I guess another another way to, for me to think about it is like that maybe the ones who who didn't think they were putting on a costume, those are the ones we should really worry about. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The ones yeah. who, who whose identity truly simply was lawyer lawyer person. Right. Like they're a baby, but somehow already a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you went from that. From being a lawyer as your day job to being a, a, a Westworld, a TV writer as your day job, partly you, you've said uh, because this is—I mean, you want to be a writer, but health insurance. This is, this is America, and so yes. we have to think about health insurance <laughs> when we think about career choices. Um, what was the beginning of that transition like for you when when you arrived in the writers' room and that that was your job instead of doing mergers and acquisitions or you know the whatever corporate law stuff you were doing yeah it was really it was bizarre i took a few weeks off but i mean it was really like i got a call one day i was sitting in the in my office and i got an interview and i met with the showrunners of the show and i got the job and then the next you know, month I was there at like this, you know, Warner Brothers lot, like just like having lunch and it was really weird. And then my job became, yeah, it went from talking about very sort of, you know, dry legal things to just talking about a story all day, talking about characters and getting to do research and have fun and talk, um, like a lot of free snacks. It it was, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. Um, 
and then it became a really hard job, you know, to be honest. It, it, there were really long hours and there was actually a lot of pressure to get things right because, I mean, at least with a lawyer, it's like you turn the thing in and you're like, I, I don't know if there's a right answer or a wrong answer, but you kind of know when your work is done. Whereas with this creative job, it's much more subjective. You don't know if you've hit the mark or not. And um, there's always the chance that someone will come back and say, no, you know, can do better. Hmm. But, but it seems like even this dream job, in a sense, it, it was also a grind. It was also a job. It was. Yeah, it is. Or it is still. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> still doing it. Let's take another question from our audience. Uh, I'm Luke, and my question is, what inspired you to choose the uh, screenplay format in Interior Chinatown, and what is your intended effect with it? Yeah, thanks. Great questions. Um, I think what inspired me was, yeah, I had started working in TV at that time, and if I wanted to write a story about Willis as a kind of performing being an Asian, you know, performing um, who he is, um, writing it in a script format gave like me as the writer, but also gave the reader, I think a, a very easy visual distinction to know when you're in the story and when you're not in the story, you know, when you're in Willis's kind of like personal life. And so I just needed that like device to be able to jump back and forth, if that makes sense. Um, and I was, what was the second part of your question? Yeah, I think the intended- yeah, any other parts uh, for listeners at home, what's your intended effect with it? Yeah, I think the intended effect is one to keep it more fun, you know, to to not have like be reading whole passages where I'm describing, but I can just sort of show, look, there's this kind of world he wants to be part of, and that's the script world, and there's the world of his own thoughts, and that's the kind of regular prose world, and so um, yeah, it gave me sort of a visual and a conceptual um, uh, way to distinguish between the two worlds. Let's take another question from our audience. What's your name? What's your question? I'm Henry Taylor, and I was wondering, uh, how has your experiences working in television with Westworld influenced your book, Interior Chinatown, and what other influences helped you create it? Yeah, thanks. These are all such great questions. I, um, it influenced a lot. I mean, I think Westworld, if anyone's seen it, has, has a lot to do with sort of like reality and performance and artificial realities and also loops and i think all of those things actually are in interior chinatown so i think no doubt the content informed me i think the other thing that was really helpful is um you know for westworld for the first season that that writer's room was just filled with um so many super talented people and i felt super lucky to be learning from all of them they were all more experienced than i was in tv um as a like a fiction writer i just spend most of my time alone writing and I don't workshop it with anyone. I don't show it to anyone usually. Um, so getting to not just work with other writers, but literally watch them go through their own process. It, I kind of was able to incorporate those voices in my own head, I think, and, and like take that with me back to the book and say, you know, not so much like how would so-and-so write this, but just that, that kind of you know, education was really valuable. To, and just, it was also inspiring to be around other people's creativity. Cause I think, um, there's, there's a tendency, at least for me to think, Oh, this is so hard or such a slog. And it's, um, one that's like sort of a, not a great mindset, you know, like to, to be lucky enough to get to do something creative is pretty amazing. But then, yeah, to do it with other people and always have that energy to feed off of is really, 
really invigorating. Hmm. Let's take one more question. Go ahead. Uh, my name is Emily, and my question is, uh, did, did Karen have an inspiration, and or why was she written the way she wasn't? Did she have an inspiration? I should say, Karen is is the one of the relatively major characters in your new novel. Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, yes, I, I mean, I think roughly Karen's inspiration was um, like from a personal perspective, my wife, <laughs> um, whose name is not Karen, but I think Karen for Willis is someone who's like a grown up in a way that he sort of isn't, and. That's sort of how I felt when I first met my wife is um, <clears throat> I probably needed to grow up in order to <laughs> stay with her. And um, I, uh, I think I also wanted to investigate, like if Willis is obviously the main character of the book and there's an Asian American male centric perspective to the book necessarily, that's the one I understand the most and that I was trying to portray in this book. But I did want to have, like some variety in terms of being able to portray a very different experience, which I think was, would be the experience of someone like Karen, who's, um, a woman and also, you know, multiracial and, um, just navigating, um, the world in a different way. We have to take a quick break, but we have a lot more from Charles Yu and our student audience here at Portland's Ida B. Wells high school. Stay tuned. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We are in front of a student audience at Portland's Ida B. Wells High School today talking with the award-winning writer Charles Yu. He is the author of four books, including Interior Chinatown, Sorry, Please, Thank You, and How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. Let's take another question from one of our students here. My name is Beckett, and my question is, how does it feel for your book, Interior Chinatown, to be turned into a TV series? Thanks, Beckett. Uh, Good question. It feels weird. It's uh, like a dream come true, but also scary, you know, um, to kind of potentially bring it to a bigger audience. And also, um, I'm very involved in the process. So it's weird to have written a book and taken this long to write it and then kind of have to do it all over again because a lot of things that work in the book do not work in a visual medium like television. So that's just been really tricky and challenging, but really fun. Um, How... How much can you tell us about how you dealt with the what, what I imagine to be one of the central challenges of taking a, a book that is a kind of meta narrative? It's I mean, as we've as you've already talked about, it is a, a about a TV show that is essentially reality. But how do you turn that into an actual TV show? How did you approach that? <laughs> uh, a lot of trial and error. I mean, I, I would. I took a lot of like false starts and dead ends and sort of even just trying to get to the first script stage. When you say that you had to basically start again, I mean, it it seems like you're not exaggerating. You had to create a whole new work to make this work, maybe more so than some other adaptations. I think that, yes, I think so. I think I kind of had to take a few swings just to crack the idea. And I will say it's not the only way I could have done it. Um, in retrospect, there's probably things that I would do different, but I'm also, you know, like this is the way that it evolved and there's a lot of reasons for that and I'm excited for people to see it. But um, yeah, I think you put your you know finger on it. It's like very tricky to nail that meta aspect because what you can hold in your mind, you, it doesn't translate on screen where you have to see something. 
Hmm. When's it going to be released? Don't know yet. I'm hoping this fall. I mean, I'm in the process of um, basically editing. So we've shot all of it, um, and now we're doing post-production on it. Let's take another question. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Suhao, and my question was, how did being a lawyer uh, affect the way you write? Great question. Um, it, you know, I was a pretty lazy high school and college student, I'll be honest. Um, and I think being a lawyer forced me to be much more precise with my words. Um, and it forced me to um, really, like, iterate. I think when you, like, the idea of sending something to my boss and then having it come back and then just doing that over and over again at first was like, oh, my God, this is what I'm going to be doing. But that actually trained me really well for writing prose and also in TV and film as well because you just have to do a lot of drafts of things to get them right. And it's not a thing where it's like that's failure. It's actually just how you make something better. And I think being a lawyer was actually really good training for that. So, you know, the subject matter is much more dense and not to me wasn't as interesting, but it was, um, yeah, it gave me a lot of discipline. I heard you say in an interview once that most of what you write bores you. Yeah. Um, what What do you find to be boring? I mean, if, when you're rereading, I, mean, I imagine this was about editing in a sense, going back and looking at what you've done. What do you find to be the the, the most common things that either that you've written or that other people write um, where where you lose interest? I mean, when I write it. I lose interest when I feel like I'm being more serious and I'm just like being a little pretentious or it's just not coming from a real place. Um, I, so I, that's often why I'll just start to switch it up in terms of the rhythm of a sentence or just kind of curve the language a little bit. So it's less kind of less straight, a little less serious, you know, it is not taking itself too seriously. In terms of what I read, I mean, I read a lot of stuff that I would, I could never write. So I, I, I try to read pretty broadly. I'll be honest. I mean, a lot of stuff bores me too. Like I'll, I'll, most TV bores me. I just, you know, I start it and I'm like, I don't want to watch any more of this. And so, um, I, do you stop? I definitely stop. There's too much on. Yeah. <laughs> and like I watch a lot of YouTube now cause I'm like, well, you know, that's three minutes and I can do that. So I, I feel like, um, I might just have a very low threshold for boredom, <laughs> but, um, I don't know. I also think the internet has probably changed that for me, but I mean, the things I look for are often things where there's, even if it's not perfect, it's something, there's something raw or real happening where you're like surprised. That's, mm. that's the, for me, the opposite of boredom is, Something just really unexpected, even if it's weird or, or like not great. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Hmm. wonder if you could read us uh, an excerpt from your latest book. Uh, this is from near the end of the book. Um, it's when your main character, Willis, finds himself in a new role as, as a dad, as a sitcom dad, kung fu dad. Um, he has not been around his daughter, Phoebe, much in the past, uh, and now he is putting her to bed. Phoebe, can you tell me a story? Kung Fu Dad. I don't know how. No one's ever asked me to. Phoebe, can you try? Kung Fu Dad. Okay, I'll try. There once was a little girl who was... You pause, unsure of what to say next. This is a key point in the story. The next word and whatever you say after that will determine a great many things about it. will either open up the story 
like a key in a lock in a door to a palace with however many rooms, too many to count, and hallways and stairways and false walls and secret passages, or the next word could be a wall itself, two walls closing in. It could be limits on where the story could go. You search for the right word, the pressure and expectation from her little face mounting with each millisecond of silence that passes. And it is about to come to your lips and tongue. You're just about to say it when your daughter turns to you and says, it's okay, daddy. What did you want to explore in, in that scene? I mean, I, you know, where this comes from is like, I, I have a daughter and a son and, um, I think a lot of the most honest conversations I've ever had still, a lot of my favorite conversations ever were just me like half asleep. <laughs> I'm trying to get my daughter to fall asleep. She was a bad sleeper at first. She's still a very bad sleeper. And like, um, and, but out of those came this, these kind of like moments of just her surprising me and her um, just being so much more aware and so much more, um, I don't know, emotionally present than, than like most adults ever are than I ever was kind of waking me up out of my, you know, sort of middle-aged, you know, complacency. So I think what I was exploring was just this relationship, this like intimacy and these moments of between a parent and a kid, um, when you can be really sort of real with each other and the hope for, for Willis as a dad to try to give his daughter something. And ultimately the kid saying like, you don't have to give me that, you know, like we're, we're here together already and that can be enough. Hmm. I was also struck by the, the idea that of Willis in that scene as a father, as you're describing, but, but also as, as a writer or a storyteller, as, as a kind of author figure who is, um, scared of that, that each word that follows is, could either open a door or maybe simultaneously open a door, but also foreclose other, other possibilities. Do, do you feel that way yourself as a writer? That, I mean, that, that pressure, that every choice you make, it, it, um, it closes some doors. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what's, that is ultimately what it comes down to is choices. And you have to close the door. You have to take the choice. I mean, take the path that means you lost other opportunities, but otherwise... There's nothing. There's nothing. So, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think that you hit on something else important that I forgot to say, Dave, which is I think as a parent, too, I think that way, too, that when my kids, especially when they're younger, but even now, I think about, like, I don't want to infect them with my sort of limitations, like the way I see the world. Like, well, the last thing I want to, want to do is for them to just see it the way I do because, one, I know the limitations of that, and, two they're different people. So like I worry about, will I sort of shape them unconscious and no doubt a parent does. And that's what part of what we're supposed to be doing. But I think I also want to, I try to be mindful of like not doing that too much. Hmm. You know, we were talking earlier about the, the roles that we play um, consciously or not um, in, in various ways. What roles do you feel like you have now in, in 2024? I don't know. Um, I mean, I think as someone who's written books, I get to like talk to people that read them and especially increasingly like students, which is really exciting and fun. I mean, that's like the most gratifying thing because 
when you write this, like when I was a student and reading things that really affected me, I imagined someday actually writing something that that was the dream that would affect someone else too. And that would touch them. And so the, to whether or not someone likes the book or even gets it at all, just the idea of having a conversation about it, that's really exciting. So I guess one role is as someone who wants to make things and share them with people. Um, I think as a dad, you know, my kids are not that far from college or for whatever, from moving out. So that's my main role. And as a husband and trying to be good to, you know, as a son, my, my dad is very old. My mom passed away and my dad's very old. So I feel like I shouldn't say very old, but he is old. <laughs> I mean, he's old. And so, I mean, I think I'm starting to think of myself as someone who's got to, you know, take care of sort of him as well. And so, I mean, those are the main roles I would say. I'm kind of a bad friend. I don't keep in touch with my friends, so I want to be better at that. Hmm. Let's take another question from our audience. Go ahead. Uh, my name is Calvin Howarth. Um, my question is, in Interior Chinatown, the main character talks about being trapped. Did you ever feel trapped or do you still feel, or do you still feel trapped in your career? Thanks. It's a great question. Is your name Calvin with a K? Oh, let's see. Okay. Just wondering. Um, my brother's name is Kelvin, like K-E-L-V-N. Um, I think I definitely identify with Willis in some ways in terms of being trapped, feeling trapped. And I think part of the writing the book was the exploration of that mindset, which as I've like started to adapt it or I've, I, I've adapted it for a TV show and talked to so many other people, I realize how that doesn't necessarily, not only does it not resonate with some people who have very different experiences, even people who like outwardly are similar to me demographically don't all identify with that experience either. And I, and, and there's people that are very different from me who do, I, you know, I, I feel like it's not just about race or, or sort of a generational thing, but it's a kind of a feeling of being a background character of being marginalized. And so that's something that for whatever reason I've always identified with. I still do. I think it goes back to what I was saying about being scared of lunch, you know, like just not knowing where I fit in and always having that anxiety is like real. Like I still have that kind of social anxiety. And, um, and so maybe that just comes, maybe that's what, why I became a writer. Cause I think ultimately a writer is an observer from the outside, usually, um, of, of an experience or of, of life. Go, we have another question from Ronnie. Let's go ahead. Building off of the, the Willis question, uh, I wanted to ask, is Willis really the main character of Interior Chinatown, or is it rather about Chinatown slash assimilation slash immigrants at large? A really good question. Um, both. I think it's both. I, I, I really is not a cop-out. I think this kind of goes back to what we're talking about with like specifics and universality of like, can you tell a story that's both you know, very, like, should a story be very specific or should it be very general? And I think, yes, you know what I mean? Like, specificity doesn't actually detract from the universality. It often helps it, I think, because people say, well, I don't get the particulars of that, but I like them, and that's interesting to me. And yet it's the somehow seeing that the commonality underneath the surface differences that actually starts to make the the universality of the, the universal part actually more meaningful. So uh, I, I really don't want to approach it. I, I don't approach it like through a message or through like larger themes. I hope the theme emerges from the, the specific story that I'm telling. But when you step back and look at it, I think it sort of has to work on both levels to have weight for me. So great question. 
Right, we have another question. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, um, Colin Wigman. Um, so I know for me and many others, writing about negative topics can be really difficult emotionally. Um, so do you ever feel that way about your work? And if so, um, how do you separate yourself from that negativity? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think on some level, I try not to shy away from, like, I, if maybe negativities. You, maybe this question is slightly different than what I'm going to say, but I feel like it's often the things that make me uncomfortable or it's like the the painful part where I'll avoid it for a long time and then the writing will feel somehow shallow or just kind of not hitting the mark. And I'll realize it's because I'm trying to skirt the issue and I need to write in into the pain, into the what's making me uncomfortable. Um, and sometimes that can feel negative, but I mean... If it's being a, if I'm approaching it from a place of honesty, um, and if I'm just trying to show an experience and not necessarily judge it or characterize it or judge or characterize people, but just tell the truth, you know, the emotional truth about it, then I I feel like that's usually where it actually starts to get traction for me emotionally. You wrote to change subjects greatly. <laughs> um, you wrote a fascinating, fascinating essay for Harper's Magazine after the 2020 election um, where you basically used the science fiction idea of world building to try to describe um, support for Donald Trump. Um, can you, first of all, just explain what, what world building means in this context, what it, what it means in the fictional context? Yeah, I mean, I don't know big like Marvel movies or a big sci-fi show like Westworld. It's the idea of um, not just telling kind of the main story or your main characters, but that in a more holistic way, you'd have answers for like, what is the economy like there? You know, what do people do in their free time? Like the density and the richness of the world can, can even when it doesn't show up in the text or on screen, can all inform the richness of your story. And so I think that gets categorized as world building now. How is it that, that this idea helped you understand support for Donald Trump in, in the aftermath of the election? Yeah, I, I think, I think I, I'm no fan of his in any way, but I think what I was trying to do is um, uh, understand the particular skill and talent that he has in a slightly different lens and, and the way I think of it is that he has ways in like, to me, the trick of world building when you're like creating, say a sci-fi show or a novel is you suggest things and the, the reader is doing most of the work. I, I think it's like a, not even 50, 50, it's like 10, 90, you know, if like you write something and someone's like, Oh, that's cool. And then they're suddenly writing fan fiction about it or, or not. They're just thinking about your world. They fill in the rules or the details based on sort of gestures on the part of, of the writers. Yes. <laughs> huh? Yeah. And, and that's, you think part, one of the things that Donald Trump does. I think so. I think what it is, is a very incoherent worldview. If you actually pieced it together but it, the, the, the level in which he can evoke like feelings and the, the longing for a kind of impossible or never was world in, in the minds of people that support um, his policies and 
I, I think that's what he's doing is essentially writing fiction about a reality that a certain segment of people really want to exist. If with this as your thesis, what is your prescription for how to unravel uh, a a world built on lies that 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 has, but the belief in that world has become um, central to people's identity? Like, how do you mm. how do you unravel a world like that? If I had an answer, I would be out doing something about it. I I I, I mean, a kind of one very hopeful, probably overly optimistic answer is to tell a better story. Um, I don't know that that works. I think people have been trying to do it and people have been doing it. And I don't know that works. I do, I do feel like, and people have said it better than I, I'm going to say it, but I think it's really true. I don't think it's necessarily through like rational argument or facts. I, I think it's clear that you can't fight that's the power of that fiction and world building with a bunch of like statistics, no matter how, you know, obvious it may seem. Um, so I've, what, what I hope is that it's a combination of um, very skilled world building in a different way and also reaching people somehow in, yeah, in their heart on an individual level rather than, you know, sort of messages or propaganda that, you know, just bounces off people for the most part when they feel like, oh, I know who the audience where this is and it's not me. All right, one more um, big swerve of a question here. Uh, to go back to, to time travel, which we talked about at the very beginning, in um, How to Live Safely, you say that, your, your narrative says that when you get down to it, people want to relive their very worst moments over and over again. These are people who can go anywhere in their lives and they, they go to their worst moments. Have you thought about where you would go in your own life if, if you could travel forward or backward in time? Yeah, if I had a time machine? yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, this is pretty sappy, but I, I think I'd go to like what well, my family and I, we moved to where we live now about 10 years ago. And that first year, like, I remember even just like the first moment we came in, like walked into our new house and it was totally empty, but it was really exciting for our kids. Cause they now each had their own bedroom and there's like ran to it. And then, um, yeah, that was, it's pretty nice. And we had air conditioning. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> the suburban dream. Yeah. Charles, it was great talking to you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, everyone. Thanks as well to Cassie Lonzis, the librarian here at Ida B. Wells High School, and English teacher Kevin Kilgore, and to Olivia Jones-Hall from Literary Arts. And thanks in particular to um, our fantastic student audience here and all the questions you all ask. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation. Think Out Loud and all of OPB's reporting in our communities are made possible by the support of our members. 
do your part to help make it happen. Become a sustaining member now at opb.org slash pod.